Hi, I'm Rick Steves. India is my favorite country, and I almost don't like talking about it. It's just so rich and exquisitely different. Explaining it to people who've yet to travel there is frustrating. India opens you up to the notion that every nation finds different truths to be God-given and self-evident. And while challenging, that can be a beautiful thing. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're visiting with Serena Singh, who writes a guidebook to India. I'm curious about eating with my fingers, Hinduism for travelers, and dealing with the inevitable culture shock that comes with exploring India. Let's start today's show with an open phone session, hearing your stories of the kindness you've encountered from strangers in your travels. So often, friendly locals turn a mishap into a favorite travel memory. The kindness of strangers and the challenge of India. Stay with us as we venture outside our comfort zones and come back happy we did. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Where are you most likely to enjoy the trip of a lifetime? Many would say India. Coming up, we'll learn why, as Lonely Planet guidebook researcher Serena Singh introduces us to that fascinating land. Let's start today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves with your stories of encounters on the road that left you with a valuable lesson learned. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is our email address. Marcia in Seattle, thanks for your call. Hi. My partner and I and our three teenage and preteen kids had just come on the overnight train from Nice to Rome, which (laughs) I'll never do again, but we had arrived at the train station in Rome and figured out that we needed to get on the bus to get to our hotel and figured out which bus we needed to get on. So we took the kids and the luggage and got everybody on the bus, and then the bus driver who was sitting right there on the station in the bus said that we needed to have tickets. So my partner and I got out and figured out where we needed to go to get the tickets, and he stayed with the bus, just kind of standing around the bus, and I ran back into the station to get the tickets. And he was communicating with the bus driver and saying, you know, five more minutes, and the bus driver said five more minutes. Well, by the time I got back out, my partner's eyes were big as saucers, and the bus was gone with our three kids and all our luggage. Apparently, there was no real communication between the bus driver and my partner about the bus sitting and waiting for us to get back on. So he just took off with the kids and the luggage. And, of course, the kids had no idea where we were going. They had no idea what the name of the hotel was or anything like that. And we didn't have cell phones or anything with us, so they wouldn't have had a way to get in touch with us. When I got out and realized this, I was in an utter panic. These kids were on this bus and had no idea where they were going We had no idea if they were going to stay on or if they were going to get off, and we were all so tired and so hungry. And there happened to be a group of bus drivers standing around, and we went over to them, and it was pretty obvious to them that I was in a complete panic. None of them really spoke any English, and we didn't speak any Italian. But one bus driver figured out, Bambino, and I said, yes, Bambino. You know, I don't know how to say bigger Bambino, but (laughs) still. (laughs) So one of the drivers took us in a car that was apparently one of the metro kind of little cars. It hardly even had a back seat in it, but he loaded us into the back seat of the car, and he tried calling the bus driver. But, of course, the uh, phone lines, the operators were on strike, so he couldn't get a halt directly with the bus driver. So we decided to just follow the route of the bus. We followed the route of the bus, came upon a bus that had the right number. My partner got out and ran to the bus. There were none of our kids on there, so we got back in the car and chased down another bus, and we got to this other bus, and lo and behold, there were the kids. Apparently, one of the passengers on the bus spoke enough English to understand the kids talking to each other about the fact that they'd been abandoned on this bus, and she had gone up to the bus driver and said, you have three kids who have no adults with them, and they're lost, and you need to stop the bus. This is so in had, this is in Rome? This is in Rome. This is like a needle in a very scary haystack. Oh, I can't tell you how frightened we were. So he stopped the bus and just sat there, apparently, just waiting for somebody or something to happen. And, of course, the other passengers on the bus were getting irate with the bus driver. So we caught up to the bus. We found the kids. 
We got her. <laughs> we gave him a brief thank you, loaded on the bus, and, and went down the line until we got to our stop. When we got to our stop, we got off the bus, and I don't know why it didn't even occur to me to give the driver hell, because I was really not happy with him at that point for having taken off with our kids. But I didn't even think about it. I was so relieved to find the kids and the luggage that we just all got off. And when we got off, the bus driver who had taken us in the little car had continued to follow the bus until we got off. And when we all got off, he came over to us and, you know, without any English and us without much Italian at all, managed to communicate to my partner's daughter, who was the most distraught about the whole thing, are you okay? And she said, yeah, she was okay. And it really hadn't been that long, and everything worked <laughs> out, and now you can have your vacation. <laughs> Whoa, you had your Roman angel Gabriel, I think, there. Oh, we did. He was a miracle for us, and I just can't even imagine what it would have been like if he hadn't been there to help us find those kids. i got to say, of all places in Europe to have that problem, Rome's not the place I'd like, and you were very lucky. It's a good thing you knew the word bambino. Yes. <laughs> 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 All right. Marcia, thanks. That's a great story. Thank you. Oh, what an image. Thanks, and happy travels, and, and keep an eye on your kids next time. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I'm going to give them the address where we're going from now on. <laughs> Good idea. Good idea. Yeah. Thanks, Thank now. You. Happy travels. Bye-bye. Boy, Marcia and her losing her kids. Uh, I'm like that as a tour guide. I've got 24 kids when I'm taking a tour around Europe, and I make sure they've all got the address of the hotel and their money belt. So if we get separated, at least they know how to get back to their money belt. Very good advice. We're uh, learning from people's experience, and we're enjoying the heroic kindness to travelers that we'll experience if we make mistakes and roll with the punches and go with the flow and just enjoy the serendipity that comes your way when you're open to these adventures in your travels. Our phone number, 877-333-333. 7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Brett's on the phone with us from Overland Park in Kansas. Hi, Brett. Hello. What do you make of uh, Marsha losing her kids there in Rome? You know, I'd rather lose my money, my passport, than my kids. <laughs> I think so. She was a lucky, lucky mom. Yes. What's your story? Well, last March, I uh, was running the Maratona di Roma with the Leukemia Society team in training. Being an avid Rick Steves book reader, I was a little bit nervous about leaving my passport and my money and my credit cards in my hotel room, and I didn't want to leave it with friends who were watching the marathon because it started and finished at the Coliseum, which, as you know, is a, a haven for pickpockets and that sort of thing. So I purchased a little pouch that I could attach to my, my running gear where I would just keep it with me. And during the course of the race, it fell off. And uh, I did not realize it fell off until about mile eight. And at that point, there was nothing I could really do but keep on running. And uh, the interesting part was it probably made me run a little faster because I was so worried about what I was going to do and how I was going to catch my flight home the next day that I forgot about the pain that I was undergoing in the marathon and probably ran faster due to the, uh, the nervous energy. One of my friends who uh, was following the marathon I saw her at mile 10, and I told her what happened, and she checked with the police, and they basically told her I was a stupido. I think that was the Italian word. I can imagine. And that it was mm-hmm. gone. And when I crossed the finish line, I looked to my left, and there she was, and gave me a thumbs up and told me that it had been found with everything in it. And apparently what had happened was, while I was running the remainder of the race, an Italian gentleman named Stefano found the pouch on the ground. He opened it up, saw my passport, my home phone number, and he called my home in Kansas City, and my wife answered the phone at 3 o'clock in the morning, and that she knows that uh, being aware of a money belt, I don't lose my passport and my money for anything, and uh, she became very worried but told him the hotel that I was staying at. And He called the hotel, and they told him I was checking out tomorrow and that I would need it very quickly, and so he drove all the way across Rome and delivered my pouch with all my belongings personally, and I'm eternally grateful to him. Wow, Brett, that's a great story and a great example of uh, some heroic kindness. You couldn't count on that, but I think you lucked out a little bit. I was very fortunate. Yeah. I would um, remind people that, yeah, we have to be careful of our valuables and so on, but I'd far prefer to leave it in the room than to carry it with me in a circumstance like that. I think generally hotel rooms are safe. You don't leave money laying around, but put it in a drawer. I don't generally use the hotel safes. I've had good luck with leaving my valuables in the hotel room. When I lose something or when people lose something, it's generally 
with them. As Europe has become more affluent, I think you find a bigger percentage of people who really aren't going to be even considering stealing something from you. And there's a good chance when the average guy on the street picks up a, a money belt or something, if he's not a thief, he's going to take initiative and try to find its owner. So that's a good example of that. Brett, thanks for your uh, story. I'm glad you were running fast at that marathon. Okay. You, you fin- you. How'd you do in the race, by the way? I finished. That's all that matters. That's good. Well, congratulations. Oh, thank you. You bet. Jen in Andover, Minnesota. Hi, Jen. Thanks for your call. Hi. Good story. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me your story. Okay. My husband and I were in um, Scotland doing a 10-day tour. We flew in and out of Glasgow, but started in Edinburgh for our actual touring and ended in Stirling. And in Edinburgh, we wound up leaving our coats behind. We didn't figure it out until we were in Inverness or maybe Glencoe. Sort of called back, and she said that they still have them, and we could arrange for a courier to pick them up. We're like, okay. So we start going into grocery stores and finding phone books to try and figure out who we can go for a courier. She actually had said go with the postal service. So we stood in the long lines at the post office to see if they could do it, and they said, no, you have to use a courier. And we couldn't figure out any of the couriers there. I guess it was one of those times where you just operate our error on that but could not do it. So we finally are at the end of our trip. We're in Sterling, and we're like, okay, we're just going to have to take a train back to Edinburgh to get our coats and then take a train from there all the way to Glasgow again to get back to the airplane, which was going to take off at like 6 o'clock the next morning. We mentioned this to our B&B hosts, who um, were quite shocked that we had arrived so late because we were getting lost that day on our way into Sterling. They treated us to free dinner at their lawn bowling club. <laughs> and then George actually said, well, you're still here tomorrow, right? I'm like, yeah, we have to leave tomorrow to get over to Glasgow to fly out. So we have tonight and then early tomorrow or to get to Edinburgh and get our coats. And he's like, well, where in Edinburgh is it? We gave him the information of the B&B. He's like, oh, I'll just pick them up for you. Really? Yeah, yeah, I've got work there in Edinburgh tomorrow. I'll just, I'll just go pick them up. So we were still there that night, and he brought the coats back, and he also talked us into staying there one more night rather than staying the last night in Glasgow because he uh, has, shall we say, a low opinion of Glasgow mm-hmm. um, and said, well, what time's your flight in the morning? We're like, well, it's really early. I mean, we're going to be out of here in the wee hours. And he's like, oh, I've got work in Glasgow in the morning. I'll just drive you over there. So he got up well before his wife, who usually does the breakfast for everybody, to make our breakfast and then load up our stuff and then take us through a horrible morning rush hour traffic to the airport the next day. So um, George was our angel. George. (laughs) Now, this was a bed and breakfast, is that right, Jen? Yes. Yeah, that's a very good uh, example why uh, you'd be very uh, rare to find that kind of willingness for somebody to actually leave the office and head out if you're in a hotel. But in a and b you're, you're likely to become a family friend, and, and you can uh, find people uh, taking time to really help you out like George did. Yeah, it was a total blessing. It was great. Good for you. You must have been a, a, a good guest. It's in your interest to be a, a joy to have in a little B&B. They get a lot of travelers that are high maintenance and, and no fun and, and discourage them from taking you in. But if you're a good guest and if you're a joy to have around, you've got a friend in the people that run your bed and breakfast. Mm-hmm. Jen yeah. from Minnesota, thanks for sharing your story. Thank you. And uh, take care of your coat. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye now. Bye. Next up, India. Fragrant, mystifying, and challenging with guidebook writer Serena Singh. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
your attention please Indian Airlines announces the departure of their flight IC408 to Calcutta passengers are requested to proceed to the aircraft I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. You know, when people ask me what is my favorite country, I often surprise them because I tell them the truth. It's India. I've had the most fascinating travel experiences in India, and it's a country that just completely rearranges all of your cultural furniture and challenges all these truths we're raised, we're thinking, we're self-evident and God-given. And I'm looking forward right now to talking with an expert in India, a woman who helps write the 1,100-page guidebook to India published by Lonely Planet. We have with us Serena Singh. Serena, thanks for joining us. Pleasure, Rick. Boy, when you think about India, what a challenge for an American to tackle India. I mean, it's a home of a, a billion people. I, I think of it not as a country, but as a, a subcontinent with as much diversity, really, as Europe, for instance. Uh, is that your take on that? Absolutely. In fact, I often, I think exactly the same way as you. India is not one homogenous country. It's like all these little countries that, you know, jigsaw puzzle into into one subcontinent and you can travel from one state to another and experience a completely different set of customs and traditions and I, I do think that is one of the highlights of traveling it offers so much diversity and it's just so incredibly multi-dimensional and it has the uh, heritage of the British uh, colonial days which there's a lot of downside to that but I think two upsides are a common language for travel which is English and one of the best train systems on the entire planet uh, trains connect every part of India Exactly. I mean, English is widely spoken, and that's one of the joys of traveling in India. And if you just talk slowly sometimes, and remember that people, it's maybe a lot of people's second languages, then you can get by. Traveling on train, it's a must-do experience, I think. And, and if you can manage third class, there's nothing like it, because it's like a carnival ride. The people that will get onto the train and off the train, and the vendors that will be selling all sorts of things, in itself is a bit of a... Um, experience and it's got one of the biggest railway networks in the world so it all works somehow and even though India is incredibly chaotic things somehow work and that's what I really love about the country and the great thing I, I always say to travelers it is confusing when you get to a railway station but but the way to tackle that is to find a porter who will eagerly grab your bags and he knows exactly which train leaves from where so if you're feeling a bit bamboozled by it all that's one of the keys to get into your train without having a stroke. So you have a, a porter and you tip him something reasonable, but you can actually trust the porter to uh, not steer you wrong and not blackmail you and, and so on? Most porters generally are good. The one exception, unfortunately, is in the capital, Delhi, where in the main train building there's a foreigner's booking department. There's all sorts of scams trying to part you know, travellers with their money. So a couple of porters there, unfortunately, try to tell you that the office is burnt down or it's closed right. or that it's across the road. So Delhi is a little bit of a, um, it, it's a challenge. And if you can get through Delhi, you can get through anything in life, I think. Now, we got to remember, we're dealing with a billion people here. Rail is the way to go for the so many of these millions and millions of people. And as a traveler from America, you really stick out. And I found that it was like people usher you through all of the squalor and they, they take care of you. They're concerned about you. In, in so many cases, you're given a little bit of a hand. On the other hand, I've been almost stampeded by uh, wiry old grannies that just know how to get on that third-class train car ahead of me, and it's sort of a stampede and a free-for-all. You mentioned, Serena, that you would choose a third-class train experience rather than a first or a second class. Uh, I found that to be fascinating, too, but are you serious? You'd rather recommend people take third class? Well, the first rule, of course, never meddle with a granny. Anywhere, because grannies have a lot of power in India. They are the matriarchs, so they get first served. That's the first rule. That's the Secondly, reason. They just trampled me. I was just, I was overwhelmed by all these grannies, and I guess I should have understood that they are the, uh, uh, they go first. They go first, and once you know that, things smooth out because you just, you know, you let them pass, and you don't have a bit of a, uh, a granny fight, so to speak. But the third class, I think, look, when I did it, I was younger. I had the energy and it, it just gave me a very different window into India. I think, though, if you can mix it up, definitely first yeah. class and second class. Train travel is difficult. So particularly if it is your first trip to India, take it easy and choose those classes because they're still not a smooth ride. They'll still have their challenges, but they're far easier than third class. But if you want a bit of a uh, an adventure... Yes, that's I'll right. never forget stampeding onto third class, and I saw the luggage racks are kind of where people can crawl up and, and uh, stretch out. 
and I, I physically climbed myself out of the crowds, and I, I stretched out on a luggage rack above it all, and I remember just gazing out the window, uh, the door, actually. I don't think there was a door that closed, and we were just cruising across the countryside. It had been monsoon season, so it was one big flood out there, and everybody was celebrating the monsoon. At each stop, you had a, a whole parade of fascinating people and, and children selling things and beggars coming actually into the train, flooding through the train, and it was just a cultural carnival. It definitely is. And again, it can be quite overwhelming. So I think India, you've got to know yourself and your travel. If you've not traveled much in Asia, perhaps take a gentler foray on your first trip so you get a taste for it. But, um, but I think once you're prepared, if you're just open to whatever happens, then you're going to go with the flow that is India and your trip will be a lot more rewarding than if you fight what comes at you. Now, India can be overwhelming, and let's get right into that right now, the culture shock. For an American who's never been out of our Western culture to drop into India, it's actually dangerous because you don't know how you're going to handle it. And when I was there, I found certain uh, places of refuge, fancy hotels. Even if I didn't stay in a fancy hotel, I could go into a fancy hotel. Beggars wouldn't follow me in there. I could trust the water. I could read an American magazine or whatever. Uh, something that was a very nice refuge for me was going to the movie. India has the biggest cinema industry, I think, anywhere. And to step into a theater, there's no animals running around. It's air-conditioned. And you're just lost in this glorious cinema wonderland that is the Hindi uh, movie style. What is your advice, Serena, on helping Americans deal with the culture shock? Well, I guess some of the things that you've mentioned, I do. I also advise in the book to, if you want some escapes, to go into, even if you can't afford a five-star hotel, go and sit in the lobby. And then if someone gives you a bad look, go into the coffee shop and order a cappuccino because that can just give you some respite. And I think one of the keys to travelling in India is to be gentle on yourself, not cram too much into a day because just stepping out of your hotel room, it, it, things are going to come at you and be right in your face. So don't factor too much in. And I have met a lot of travellers who seem to have a list of what they want to cover. And I think that's, you know, the first way that you're going to sort of not enjoy your trip. So first few days, I just say acclimatise, walk around the streets, go and see a film, as you said, Bollywood, it's the biggest uh, film producing centre in the world. And going to, to a film, as you probably experienced, Rick, it's not just watching a film, it's a whole experience. People oh, will cheer and they'll clap and there'll be this incredible... It's like seeing Britney Spears live. It, it is. It could be even better sometimes. I mean, the sort of <laughs> things that I've seen and the joy. And, and the great thing about Indian cinema, it's a real leveler. It's the People pop from, culture, and everybody exactly. is in there. And Everyone's in, in there. Every heartthrob is featured in the movie. And what I found was really fun was to ask, what is the real trendy today film? And then you go to the theater. It'll be sold out. But there's going to be people scalping tickets outside of the theater, and you're able to afford the scalp, and you get in there, and you see the not only see the the movie, but you you get a sense of the buzz it's creating in the community. Exactly, because it is. I mean, there are two things in India that create buzz and passion, and if you can tap into them, you'll be a part of the Indian vibe. One is Bollywood, and the second is cricket. Now, I I know America's not as big on the cricket as Australia, England, and a few uh, Asian countries, but. Every time I go, if I talk about the cricket, you just make an instant friend with anyone. It, they're just so passionate about wow. their cricket. So, it would, you know, if you can learn a bit before you go and just rattle off a few names, you'll just make friends quicker than you thought. Great advice. I'm talking with Serena Singh, who uh, contributes to the massive and dominant Lonely Planet Guide to India. I remember when I was traveling in India for my first trip, everybody had this book, and it inspired me to see what a real winning guidebook was. And I know you've got an impressive crew that contributes to this book right now. Serena, talking more about this uh, movie phenomenon, I'm fascinated by the eroticism in the Indian movie culture. And when I say eroticism, I mean subtle. It's all suggestive. There's nothing explicit. When the two hold hands and walk up the stairway, everybody swoons. The first kiss on screen just happened a few years ago. Is that right? Exactly. And you know, it's art. I think in the West what's happened, we've become too explicit and taken out the adventure of, of the unknown, of where things are going to lead. So in India, I mean, they have factored this in, as you say. You have women, for example, these gorgeous Indian women wrapped in tight saris and they'll be writhing on a rock in, in the monsoonal rain. So you can just imagine the visual effects of that with the sari clinging very tightly to this woman's figure. And a kiss, a kiss was never shown. Recently, there was one film in particular called... Salam Namaste, and it was actually shot in Melbourne. And I was quite surprised. I felt like a bit of a granny myself. I was quite outraged that there was this... You know, outraged this, this a kiss quite... <laughs> on the screen. <laughs> this, I mean, it just it was so out of the norm. But so... I love the idea of the subtlety, and it's still just as sexy. 
I try to tell that to my kids when they have this graphic hip-hop lyrics, you know. Uh, we had the same sort of interest when we were kids, but it was subtle. It wasn't in your face. And the Hindi movie scene, the Bollywood scene, is just that sumptuous. And there's the appetite for getting up into the Himalayas for some reason. And you're high up in the mountains, and two lovers are holding hands, and they're swinging around. It's the heels are alive, Hindi style. And the camera's swooning with them, and you got the mountain peaks swirling around you, and you're looking into each other's eyes. And it's just a magical kind of cinema that everybody needs to experience. And you know... You don't need to understand the language. The plots are so melodramatic. Who cares about the language? You know what's going on. Absolutely. And there's there's some commonalities between films. There's always a villain. There's a good guy. There's a conniving brother who was disowned at the age of 15 who suddenly comes back. Jealous wives. Children seeking inheritances. And in between that all, a lot of singing and dancing because it, it is escapism for a lot of the population, so you have to have a good song-dance routine. If you don't understand the language, you can still follow a film. So I really encourage anyone to go and see a, a Hindi film in India. I love the uh, idea that it's escapism for people who can't afford an escape, because anybody can afford a ticket to a humble theater, and this is the great equalizer economically. Everybody comes together there, and they're in Wonderland. Exactly. And, you know, the, the thing is also some cinemas... You can buy different classes. So on the ground floor, you'll have the, the cheapest tickets. And if you want to have a bit, you know, for example, if you're a woman alone, I wouldn't advise going for the cheapest ticket. It's better to, to have a seat in, in a less crowded area. And you can pick where you want to sit. And the great thing is that there are tickets for people of different economic backgrounds. And I hope that India continues to do that so that, you know, the, the poorer of society aren't excluded from this one joy that they've had for so long. And what would your tip be for the American traveler? What class would you recommend for the movie going? Um, I mean, I think, I mean, there's various, uh, in, in Delhi, there's one cinema that has like a bronze and a silver and a gold and a platinum. So okay. uh, if you go for the top, and it's still very cheap, you know, it'll just be a sure. few dollars. And it just means that you've got comfier chairs, they're less crowded, and you're probably a bit higher up. So, you know, if you want to have a real escape and, again, get some respite from the chaos that is... India outside on the streets, then I'd recommend treat yourself to platinum. Why not? Hey, when you're in India, another great way to connect with the locals is to get into the local press. India, everybody seems to be news junkies. They are, to me, very political. People are very literate, I find. And there's all these knockoffs of our magazines, Time and Newsweek and so on, the Indian version. What I made a habit on when I was in India is completely forgetting news from America and getting immersed in the political happenings of the biggest democracy on this planet, India. Exactly, and there's now such a wide scope, as as you say, and they cover all sorts of topics. And, and politics, Indian politics, can be very complex, but once you start reading, you start to get the hang of it and the gist of the local journo's language as well, because it is quite different. And, and one thing in India, too, I mean, often I find when I go to India, I'm more connected to the rest of the world. I find, you know, they're very much, Indians are very much on the pulse of what's happening internationally, particularly when it comes to America and American politics. They are keeping an eye on it. And when I get back to Australia, I feel very disconnected. So uh, it's a very news-savvy country. And the media, there's thousands of publications. There's different vernacular publications. There's a lot of English publications. And by reading what the locals are reading is just going to give you a further in into the culture. So that's, again, something that people should do if they want to get more of a grasp of the culture and the local happenings. Great advice. I'm talking with Serena Singh, and she contributes to the Lonely Planet Guide to India, which really is the dominant guide to India, and I just love that book. We're talking about ways, we're not even talking about sites, are we? We're talking about ways to connect with the culture. When we're in India, I find, you know, I'm sort of a cultural chameleon, and uh, in England, I, I feel like a spot of tea. It just, I don't drink tea outside of uh, uh, tea countries, and when I'm in India, I like to feel like a vegetarian. It just feels right to be a vegetarian, especially in southern India. India, and you're in restaurants, uh, Serena, that I found were classy restaurants with well-dressed professional people eating with their fingers. And I, I seem to remember almost a formal sink in the room, and people would, it just feels right to use your fingers for what God gave them to you for, uh, eating the food. Is that still as prevalent, or with modernity and affluence in India, are, are people abandoning the, uh, you know, eat with the fingers kind of ethic? Oh, no, it's still very much there. And as you say, there's often a little wash basin. So you go and wash your hands before your meal and after your meal. And Indian food, I don't know, I think it tastes better when you eat it with your hands. And as you say, that's they're the forks and knives and spoons that God gave us. So we should get in there and use them. You just It's just a technique. You have to know how to scoop up the rice and dip it in with a little bit of dal and then get it all into your mouth 
without all these grains of rice dropping down your chin. And um, there what, are a what lot is of the trick? What is the trick, Serena? Oh, that's uh, it's just experience. The more you do, the better you get. I tried to do it by gravity, and I looked stupid. I had my little glob of <laughs> rice, and I bent my head back like a little bird trying to feed myself, and I'd drop it in with gravity. And I looked around, and I was the only guy doing that. And then I realized it's sort of a thumb scoop, like on an ice cream scoop that has a little, uh, little lever in there. And I would flip it into my mouth, not using gravity, and that worked really well. But what I was most impressed by was people who could eat soup with their fingers. Tell me about mm. that. No, I haven't seen people eat soup with their fingers, Rick. I've seen people scoop up a, a dal or a lentil soup with a piece of roti or chapati. But I just have this image of people cleaning up their bowl with their fingers or something like that. Oh, yeah, probably the, scooping the gravy, yes, they do do that. You're completely right with that. And they'll just scoop it with their fingers and lick their fingers, and then that's why the little wash basin is, is there afterwards. And there's something just right about it. As you said, your fingers were given to you to eat food, and when you grab that food with your fingers and put it in your mouth, it just you feel more at one with the food. And I don't understand Indian religion or anything, but it just feels correct when I'm in India to do as the locals do. Uh, on, the, on a practical side here, Serena, what about health? When I was in India, the joke was there was two kinds of travelers, those who know they have worms and those who don't know they have worms. Um, there, there are many types of travelers. And I think, though, you do need to take your health seriously um, because you can get some pretty nasty illnesses over there, including, I mean, everything. I won't go through them, pretty much everything. You can get it there. So, I mean, it, it's a matter of personal choice, but I think seeing, you know, someone who specializes in travel health before you leave is a wise idea, and then you can make decisions based on, on that medical advice. And take the medical advice in your India guidebook seriously, which will probably recommend only thick-skinned fruit peeled, only cooked vegetables, only uh, boiled or treated water, obviously no ice cubes and, and this kind of thing. When you buy bottled water or any bottled drink, make sure it's uh, officially bottled instead of just uh, filled up out back and with a foil cap on it. That's right. And these are some of the, the few tips. Although, interestingly, now in a lot of the capitals, a lot of the, the more upmarket restaurants are serving great salads, you know, like fresh fruit salads, avocado salads. And a lot of travellers are tucking into those now. So it, it depends. I mean, I've eaten at the top five-star hotel restaurants and got Deli Belly. Yeah. And then you can eat on the street. I think the key, if you're going to eat on the street, hot food that you can see cooking in front of you. If a lot of people are eating there, that's always a good sign too. Fast turnover. That's why I think the railroad restaurants are good, because they're just cranking out the food all day long really fast. Exactly, and they do very good omelets when you're next there, so always get a, a train platform omelet. But a lot of food's been sitting around for a long time without a good appreciation of refrigeration, a lot of flies, a lot of heat. Look out. More on India with Serena Singh coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. And we always welcome your stories and comments in the message board on our website. Look in the radio section at ricksteves.com to share your thoughts. And thanks for joining us as we continue to explore our world each week on Travel with Rick Steves. For a trip that rearranges your cultural furniture, it's got to be India. If you're suffering from a touch of ethnocentrism, I found India to be a perfect antidote. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're talking about what you'll typically experience on a first-time trip to India. It's a subcontinent as vast and diverse as all of Europe. And with around a billion people and rapidly becoming an economic force to be reckoned with, India is a place worth sorting out. That's what we're doing today on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Serena Singh, and I want to talk about some practicalities here. Uh, Serena, when I was in India, a big boon was to drop into Air India office and, and make some connections by air. Is that reasonable if somebody's bopping all over India to drop into an Air India office and just get a bunch of reservations at the same time? Or what's the, the latest on that? Interesting you should ask. We've just had a bit of a, a, a dilemma on, on the forthcoming book about how much information we provide on air travel. But I think now because a lot of the airline industry has become deregulated, so there's a lot more domestic carriers in India, which is fantastic because the prices have just dropped. So travelling around India has become cheaper and obviously with competition. You can now book um, a lot on websites. So if you want to pre-book, you can do that from home. 
Otherwise, you can drop into an office in India and make bookings as you go. The one thing that I would say, though, is not to ever book a domestic connection on the same day as you've got your international flight home. Right. Because um, often they can get cancelled or fog can delay flights. And I've seen many travellers frantic because they think they're going to miss their international connection. But booking flights now is a breeze and it can be done online too. So it is a good quick way of getting around the country. And I think it's a little less nerve-wracking and so on just to fly from point to point. Good advice on being in town well before your international connection home. I remember during monsoon time coming into Delhi trying to, hoping I would get to Delhi in time and the roads were all washing out and everything. And Strangely, during monsoon, when it looks like the whole country is devastated, people seem to be celebrating. They're so thankful for the water. Exactly. And, you know, this is the one thing that I love about India, and every time I go it keeps on making me reassess my life in Australia because in the West we get caught up with so many things. You see people with this authentic, genuine inner joy with things that we take for granted so often. For example, the monsoonal rain. You know, there's joy because the crops are going to be good it just makes people happy to see rain. Even a tap that works will make people happy. Electricity, when it doesn't fail. And again, you know, the, the, the small joys in India are something that I think is part of the India. It, it's a travel experience that can make you reflect on your own values in life and sort of make you reassess what you get hyped and stressed up about when you're back home. So on that level, India seeps into you in a lot of ways that you probably don't realise, you know, until a few months later. Isn't that the truth? For 25 years, I've been leading uh, Americans around Europe, and I can do that because I can predict what they're going to like and what's going to turn them on. But to me, going to India is such a personal thing, and it's such a magical thing, and I just feel it's almost a sacrilege to, to take people in a group as they follow me and take pictures where I say to take pictures. You need to immerse yourself in India and remember that it challenges all the truths that you were raised thinking were self-evident and God-given. It, it humbles you. I thought I knew music until I got to India, and then I realized there's no meter and there's no mode. It's a whole different kind of music, and it just makes you less uh, self-assured. That is really a beautiful thing. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I was just thinking before this interview, I thought in the West, and I'm sure it's the same in America in, as in Australia, we like to be in control of our lives. We like to go get it. That's sort of the philosophy. And one thing that India does, no matter how much you want to be in control, and I've seen people, I've seen people fight it and they just end up making themselves go crazy. You, you don't have control to a certain extent. No, you don't. Once you open yourself, that's when the opportunities will start to flood into you. So don't fight it. Just as you said, I think that's one of the key elements to getting the most out of India. And lowly bureaucrats will put the rich, powerful American in his or her place. I remember standing at a little window and this guy was sitting in there and time is money to me. I bank it, I spend it, I invest it, I use it wisely. In India, time is really not money and uh, you're not going to push things. So just mellow out. I, I really was spinning my wheels and I was getting uptight. And then I realized I'm not properly in India here. I've got to get in with the rhythm of the daily life on Indian terms. Exactly. And, you know, bureaucracy, it, it's there. It's exasperating, but it's definitely a part of India. And I reckon, I mean, a lot of things haven't gone right for me when I've been there. And I just say, okay, this is not going to happen. There's a reason for it. I'm not going to fight it. Let it go. And you'd be surprised at what can present itself to you mm -hmm. with a missed opportunity. So, Again, it's just the attitude that you go into India with that is going to determine the path that your trip takes, I think. For a few days, I was actually waging a one-man campaign to overcome the bureaucratic inefficiencies of India. Then I realized, this is stupid. <laughs> Mellow out. I would have liked to be there to see that. You would have been entertaining for a lot of Indians. Really. I think I was entertaining for a lot of Indians. Hey, we have a caller on the line from Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, Nikhil, thank you for your call. Hi, thanks, Rick. How are you doing? Good. Um, I'm a teen, and I love your radio show. Thank you. So, um, my question is about like what differences can a traveler expect when they're traveling between North and South India? India really does have a North-South divide, doesn't it, Serena? Yeah, it it does. I mean, if you if you're sort of going to slice the, the subcontinent, you've got states that fall into the south. But I think one of the keys, as we talked about earlier, India's made up of many little countries rather than two regions. And in fact, there are 18 languages recognised by the Indian constitution and then many other different dialects, about 1,600 on top of that. So in terms of language, no matter where you go, there's going to be a change. Two of the biggest variations between north and south, weather. In the south, it tends to be a lot steamier, so it's more of a humid climate. 
I also find that travelling to the south is easier in many ways because North India can be challenging in that there are a lot more touts after tourists mm-hmm. because most of the tourism is focused on the north. When you move south, people are generally more relaxed and tourists have often said that they find it much easier travelling in the south. So I, I often recommend to people on their first trip to maybe isolate a place such as Kerala in South India. It just is a very nice, it's a gentler foray into the country than travelling in the north. One of the other big differences with the north and south, a lot of temples in South India, the Hindu temples, they don't permit non-Hindus to enter them. So if you're interested in seeing temples, you might like to focus on the north because a lot are just off limits to non-Hindus. And that's because the Brahmins, who are the priestly caste in Hinduism, are generally more orthodox and conservative in the south. So that's that's one of the differences in terms of access to um, to sites, the temple access. But I actually think that the south is a lot easier in many ways to travel to, and you don't need any advice in particular that is different to the north. It seems a little more genteel in the south to me. And you mentioned Kerala, Serena, and Kerala was my favorite part of India, on the lower southwest part of India, along the coastline there, and interesting history and culture. It's the most Christian part of India, I believe. It's the first freely elected communist government, I believe, in the world, with the highest literacy rate and the most equal distribution of wealth in India. It's not wealthier than other parts of India, but the wealth that there is is more equally distributed. Therefore, you see a romantic kind of uh, simplicity in the countryside. Is that a fair assessment of Kerala, Serena? Absolutely, and it certainly is one of the more what the Indians call advanced states in terms of literacy and political sways. Also with Kerala, one of the, the great things that you can do is take a backwater cruise. There's about 900 kilometres of canals and lagoons that snake through uh, part of the state and you can take a, a boat cruise through these or a barge or a little rice boat and that's one of the highlights of travelling in India. So again, this is another fantastic way to access a country if it's your first time to take one of these little boat cruises that can last for a few days down the canals. So it's like a commuter cruise where some people are actually uh, using it like a bus ride, but other people, tourists, can sit on the roof and enjoy it as a sightseeing tour. Yeah, and in fact, it's actually been tailored for tourists so that you can hire a whole little boat, which includes a cook, and you can sleep on the boat. And wow. It is quite tourist-geared, and depending on your budget, you can have something fairly simple or you can have something fairly luxurious, but it is something to definitely look into. I was paging through your India guidebook, Serena, and I saw that there were actually chairs on the rooftops, which they didn't have when I was there. So, But to sit on the rooftop of one of those boats going up the inside passage of Kerala really is one of the magic experiences. Nikhil, does that make sense to you? Yeah, I've actually traveled throughout South India, and I'm looking forward to the north. I did India on two trips, one trip focusing on the south and one trip on the north. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Thanks for your call, Nikhil. Okay, thanks. Serena, your favorite part of India, I believe, is Rajasthan. Is that true? It is. I've got a soft spot for Rajasthan. I mean, all of India presents different different things for me, but I've got a long association with Rajasthan, and I worked on the first few Lonely Planet guides to that state. It is the most tourist to India actually travel to Rajasthan, so there's something there that's attracting people. And part of that would be the rich uh, royal heritage. It's studded with incredible palaces and forts, including a palace that's in the middle of a lake, and again, a lot of Americans actually travel to Rajasthan. It's one of their favorite destinations and also very tourist-friendly. So again, another great place to start your, your Indian experience. And in Rajasthan, I believe I had my opportunity to sleep, actually sleep in a Maharaja's palace, and it was surprisingly inexpensive. Now, there's many palaces. This is the thing. There's a Maharaja's palace, and then there's all these minor Maharaja palaces. So what is a Maharaja? Convert- a Maharaja, it literally translates into great king. And India used to be divided into princely kingdoms that were ruled by these kings. So Rajasthan had the most uh, Maharajas in India, and they all had their kingdoms. And they would live in a palace, and they had hunting lodges, they had summer retreats, they had monsoon palaces. So they lived a very lavish life, but then democracy kicked in, and uh, in 1971, Well, they lost their powers when India became independent in 1947, but then in 1971, the government also took away their stipends. They were getting uh, income from the government, so they were left with nothing. And when you've got a huge palace to maintain, it's it's a big challenge. And unfortunately, a lot of these palaces and forts went to, you know, crumbled into a sad state of disrepair. The government bought some of them and didn't look after them at all, which is terribly sad. 
But then a few of them, including one in Udaipur, which is in southern Rajasthan, in the 60s, the Maharana had the idea to convert some of his palaces into hotels. And these have done incredibly well and are a huge tourist attraction because you get to stay in a palace and, and they're extremely decadent and lavish and, you know, have all these trappings of the past. So that's oh, the yeah. way that the royal families have woven tourism into their survival, I guess. Well, it's the same thing in Europe. You have the impoverished nobility. They still have all their palaces and their land, but they've because of the new uh, way of governing, they're impoverished by the taxes or the new laws. And apparently since 1971, the Maharajas have to rent out rooms in their palaces to make ends meet. And I'll tell you, it was the most decadent experience I've had, staying in one of those palaces. There were more servants than there were guests there. I had my rickshaw guy parked out front all day long just in case I needed him. And they were just so thankful to have me there. It was a, an amazing experience. It is amazing and, and, and hugely encouraged. And you can get, again, if you've got a budget, you're working to a tight budget, you can find some places that aren't as expensive as the top-end hotels. So that can be, you know, your little treat. If you're going to lash out, factor for that in Rajasthan and stay at a, at a palace or at least have a meal in a palace. Well, across the world, rather than staying in some high-rise transplanted American uh, hotel, I would rather lash out and stay in some over-the-top example of the local aristocracy or colonialism and so on, that sort of traditional kind of elegance. And when you stay in, an, in a Maharaja's palace... I found the actual Maharaja would come and go with lots of fanfare, but with a dilapidated old jalopy for his limo. It was sort of a comical <laughs> scene, but he was clinging to the good old days as best as, as long as he could keep his car running. I, I actually made a documentary film a few years ago looking at this. It's the role of contemporary royalty in the world's largest democracy. And I looked at two families, one that's hugely successful, Udaipur, who's, who's got an empire now because he's, he's very business savvy. And in fact, his father sent him to Chicago to do a hotel management course. And that was unheard of. You know, can you imagine a Maharaja cleaning a room? It was just something that was a totally different mindset. But he did a hotel management course in Chicago, came back to India, and is now one of the most successful hoteliers in the country. Hmm. And they still cling on, though. It's a tense situation because these are people, you know, blue-blooded Indians with this grand heritage and they can't quite come to terms with being commoners, so to speak. So there's all these juxtapositions of old and new that stand against each other, as you said. And that is quite, that's very interesting, I must say. And to travel with an awareness of that is so important. And what really saddens me is how many travelers have the opportunity to enjoy exotic and complex and wondrous lands like India, and they don't take time to internalize the introductory chapters of their guidebooks to really understand what are the economic and social dynamics that are shaping what they're trying to experience and understand. Absolutely. And one of the things I really encourage, I mean, I think for any country, but for India in particular, read up as much as you can before you go so you get a bit of an understanding about the culture. It just means that you won't make any faux pas and you'll also have more informative conversations with the locals. And, you know, watch a few films. It doesn't have to be reading history books. You can get a few Bollywood films or a few documentaries and it makes a huge difference as to how you're going to be received in the country. Uh, I mean, India is very nationalistic. There's been growing pride because of its, you know, the economic boom. And if tourists come into India and start acting a bit, you know, uh, British Raj-like, uh, they, they get a bit of a kick in their face nowadays right. because they're told to go back to their country. So definitely I've seen a shift in attitudes. So reading up on culture, respecting the culture, asking people what to do if you're not sure when you go to a temple is definitely the way to go. I'm speaking with Serena Singh, and she is the author of The Lonely Planet Guide to India. Serena, you also write a guidebook to Rajasthan, and you say that Rajasthan is the most color-charged state in India. What do you mean by that? Oh, when, when, as soon as you go there, you'll see it. It's, it's a desert state, actually, but the, the turbans, the color of the fabrics that people wear, you'll find it nowhere else in India. They're just the brightest, the hottest pinks, and, you know, these, these emerald green turbans that goat herders will be wearing, and the costumes and the palaces. It's just like this explosion of color in one of the starkest landscapes of India. Plus the culture. There's a lot of festivals, such as a very famous camel fair in the town of Pushka, which attracts millions of holy people and tourists. And you've got colourfully adorned camels and livestock and musicians and snake charmers and all the stereotypical things you associate with India. But it's just colour is what makes them live. So when you go there, you'll see it. I've been talking with Serena Singh, who writes The Lonely Planet Guide to India. And Serena, 
there's such a world of advice that you can gain through somebody else's experience traveling in India for so many years. Tell me just the single most important tip for an American properly enjoying India. Well, I think, I mean, I could give you an encyclopedia, but basically be open to India and it will reward you for life. It sounds like a lot, but it's true. That's my experience. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rick. Here at Travel with Rick Steves, we think of our listeners as travel partners and offer lots of ways to participate. The radio section of the ricksteves.com website has message boards for you to continue today's discussion online. And, if you're feeling creative, send us a poem. Here's some original haiku we thought you'd enjoy from some of our traveling listeners. Dr. Janet Huber-Lowry of Sherman, Texas, has taken her students from Austin College to India during a full moon. Here's a poem she wrote us about one of these sites. Kanyakumari. Rock, mosque, statue, and temple. India's endpoint. And Lauren Guadiana of Houston, Texas, took a trip to Greece for her senior trip. Here are a few of the haiku composed in memory of that occasion. Like from a painting, cerulean blue domes shine in the Greek sunrise. Rising from the sea, like a city made of pearls, I have reached Hydra. Seas so crystal clear, I think I saw Poseidon. Is that him down there? Snack in Aegina, a bag of pistachios, the best in the world. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to our colleagues at ABC Radio in Melbourne for engineering help today. You can post your comments on this program and share your travel tips with other listeners. Our website includes guest links, podcast extras, audio archives, and video features, and a place for you to send your comments and questions for Rick. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.